0: We're going to be starting actually in verse uh, 31 of chapter six, but um, I want to do a quick summary on um, where we've been so far. So John has presented Jesus in various ways to us through chapters one through five, and um, And I kind of want to go through some of these uh, images that John's given us so far because um, he's going to give us almost another picture of Jesus in chapter six that we haven't seen yet. So in chapter one, uh, John presents Jesus as uh, it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God, that he was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, it says that word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you remember we saw in chapter two, Jesus comes on the scene and his first sign that he does is to validate chapter one, to validate this claim. He changes water into wine at this wedding and saves the day. Uh, at the end of chapter two, if you remember, he uh, miraculously cleared the temple Um, And if you remember the story, uh, the text doesn't record anything about anybody getting hurt. There was no uh, Romans dispatched. Um, It was almost like a a quote-unquote peaceful uh, cleansing of the temple. Uh, Chapter 3, Jesus meets with the Jewish leader Nicodemus, and he starts to reveal spiritual truth about salvation and the kingdom of God. Uh, verse three, uh, chapter three, verse 16, for, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Chapter four, we have the woman at the well, Jesus showing himself prophetic, looking into this woman's life. Um, and then again, revealing, revealing spiritual truth. You have uh, at the end of chapter four, the healing of the official son, chapter five, we have another healing with the invalid of uh, 38 years, and now what Javon covered last week, we have in chapter six, we have this miracle of the feeding of 5,000 plus people, Um, it's not just 5,000, if you remember Javon was saying that that's just the men that were counted, so potentially there was much more people there, But from uh, five loaves and two fish, uh, Jesus miraculously fed all these people. So in each of these chapters, you have these different pictures of who Jesus is. Um, And now we get to chapter six, and John is going to reveal him as the bread of life or the bread that has come down from heaven. And I it's funny about this text it's a, it's a discourse or it's a dialogue that we're going to see. So he just fed the 5,000 people. And now you have this dialogue or this interaction with three, I would say three different groups of people. The the first group is the Jewish uh, crew leaders, the Jewish crowd that he's going to address. The second is the quote unquote disciples or followers and I say that with air quotes because you're going to see that their hearts are not truly with Jesus after some of the words that he, he states. And then the last group of people that Jesus is going to address is his true disciples. Um, and so that's kind of how it's going to be broken up when we go through this text. Um, but I want you to look right now at verse 31 because this, this is going to provide some context of, of what we're, uh, where we're going today. So in verse 31 uh the people say our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as 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 it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So this was the video that I was going to show but I um I don't know how helpful it will be cuz I what Jared says is right and I don't if it's just going to be copyrighted and take out I don't know how helpful it'll be so I'll just explain it for for those you who don't know so the Israelites in the Old Testament at one point were in slavery to the Egyptians. Uh, Moses, with the help of God, rescues the Israelites out of Egypt, brings them through uh, the Red Sea, and then into the wilderness towards moving towards the promised land. Uh, during that time, uh, in chapter 16 of Exodus, you can see that the people started to grow hungry and thirsty And they began to grumble against Moses, saying, you you brought us out here, what, to die? So that we die of hunger and thirst. And so Moses goes to God, and lo and behold, of course, God provides. He provides manna, which there's the reference right there in verse 31. He provides manna, which is this kind of, we're not really sure what it was, but almost like this bread-like material. He provided that in the morning, quail in the evening, and then later on in chapter 17, he provides water out of a rock. And so this served as a sign in the Old Testament of a few different things. It validated who Moses was, the mediator. It showed that God has provided, and it shows that God is with his people. So now here you have Jesus, who just fed 5,000-plus people, and we get to 31, and the people want to know, hey, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, for it's written, he gave them bread to heaven and to eat. And they want to know what sign, if you remember from Jaman's teaching, what sign are you going to give us? And it's, it's kind of crazy when you hear that, because he just fed 5,000 people <laughs> with, with barely anything, which is interesting. But you're going to see, for the unbeliever... It doesn't matter how much political power uh, Jesus could have. It doesn't matter how much answered prayer or how many miracles. It doesn't, it's, it, it really doesn't come down to that for the unbeliever, which you're going to see when Jesus starts to, to speak these words. But what it really comes down to is a genuine relationship with God, to have that childlike faith and to take Jesus in um, and have this relationship with him and trust him. And so, um, so let's, let's uh, keep going here after verse 31. 32, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who, come down, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe all that the father will come to all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So as, as we go through this, the, the book of John, and we haven't got to the the majority, actually, we haven't gotten to any of these statements yet, but there's this thing that John is going to convey to us. They're called tetragrammaton uh, statements. It's the, it's the statements that Jesus, whenever he says, I am, and that reference is basically the God of the Old Testament. So you're going to see as we go through the book of John, um, like in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus describes himself as I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, verse 7, he says, I am the gate. Again, in chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and life. 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 15, I am the true vine. And you see here, you have, I am the bread of life. And so you have all these different statements kind of giving, shedding a new perspective on who Jesus is, um, using that I am statement, which basically points back to the God of the Old Testament. Jesus makes a statement, I am the bread of life. Well, what was bread? I think everybody knows at this point. First of all, it's on the backdrop of that Old Testament story the manna in the desert, the bread in the desert or the wilderness where God provided. So bread is a source of provision, seen in provision from God. It's a, a source of nourish, nourishment. It was a staple of their diet. It was used in their celebrations, including Passover. They used unleavened bread this coming just after jesus fed 5000 people with bread and here jesus from this text is saying true i am the true bread of heaven that i am the true nourishment i am their true soul food and i want you to see something i'm going to skip around a little bit and i might i'm going to skip ahead a little bit too but look at verse 32 look how many times this phrase is repeated Verse 32 says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread of heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread of heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven. Verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 46, I'm sorry, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Verse 57, as the Father sent me from heaven, I live because of the Father. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. And the end of verse 58, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So through Bible college, there's this, uh, there's this class we take, it's called hermeneutics. It's, uh, the rules or methods to, uh, interpret the Bible correctly. Basically, um, it it teaches you how to study the Bible. And one of the things that they teach us is look for repeating phrases. And so, um, just seeing how many times jesus says that he is the bread of life and that he's come down from heaven that he's the true bread he's come down from heaven over and over and over again i think that that's a it's one of the main points obviously of the passage that jesus wants to get across to us so continue on in verse 41 he now turns as he presents himself as the bread of life he now turns to that first group of people the jews verse 41, it says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Your fathers ate the manna in the the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed amongst themselves saying, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down out of heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So that, that's a mouthful <laughs> of that text. Um, and it's interesting. I, I want you to see something. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 16 really quick. This is the story of the, uh, the wilderness passage that they're referencing. In verse 41... There was two things that the Jewish people did wrong here that I noticed. In verse forty-one, it says the Jews grumbled about him. In verse fifty-two, it says the Jews dispute, disputed amongst themselves. And if you look, if you're in Exodus sixteen, I want you to look at something here. You will see just as the Jews in the New Testament grumbled, that's exactly what happened in the Old Testament when they were talking to Moses. And so um, starting in verse 2, 16, verse 2, and the whole congregation of people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Uh, Verse 4, I'm skipping around a little bit. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather this day's portion every day. Then go skip down to verse eight. And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat uh, in the morning bread full because the Lord, he's heard your grumbling. Um, Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So then the rest of chapter 16, you can see that God provides uh, bread and quail. And then go to uh, chapter 17. Now, this is, think about this. This is just after God provided uh this food now they're complaining in chapter 17 they want water and so again we don't have to look at it but again the people start grumbling and complaining so you see that there's there's all this this is exactly what happened in the old testament this is exactly what's happening now in the new testament jesus just provided all this bread for people he did this miracle along with everything else he's done from chapters one through five And instead of accepting Jesus's words, even though they're hard, they start grumbling against him. And what do they say? They use their own reasoning. Look at uh, verse 42. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Instead of looking at Jesus and going, maybe there's something to this guy. Look at the miracles that he's performing. Look at the way he's talking looking at understanding of scripture and the heavenly things, they're actually start grumbling and complaining and disputing amongst themselves and reasoning from their own logic, just as the Old Testament uh, people did as well. They're looking around, they're hungry, and they're like, I don't know how God is going to provide us any type of food. We came out to this desert and we're here to die. And so they start grumbling and complaining against Moses so it's almost like it's there's nothing new here under the sun and again the same same thing in verse 52 instead of just going okay this is hard teaching i don't understand this but you know maybe he knows something that we don't we trust you jesus they don't say any of that they just again verse 52 how can they get how can this man give us his flesh to eat so again doubting god's provision doubting that there may be something else to all this um they use their own logic and reasoning now i want to address something here because it is it is strange the language here from jesus is pretty strong um he straight up says unless you eat my flesh and, and drink my blood you don't have life in you now why is this not literal well there's Three different reasons why this is not literal. First of all, up until this point in John, you can see that Jesus often takes physical things and use them, uses them to make a spiritual point. And uh, to look at that, to look at a couple of texts of that, we can see the temple. Um, when the Jews came to Jesus and, and going, hey, what sign are you going to give us for clearing the temple? Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days, if you remember that text. And then the Jews are like, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. So again, Jesus is taking something physical, and he's, he's, he's giving you a deeper spiritual meaning. Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus, again, is just thinking in the physical. He's like, how can a person be born again? Are you going to enter your mother's womb a second time? Again, something, something physical, and he's mixing the physical and the spiritual, and you're going to see that over and over again. Uh, chapter four, the woman at the well, living water. She wants this living water, says so she'll never thirst again, and she'll never have to come back to this well to drink. But, of course, Jesus is talking about something different entirely. So that's the first reason symbolism that he's not talking about his literal flesh. Second reason is this. Go to the communion passage in Luke chapter 22 starting in verse 19. Luke 22:19 this is the last supper. Jesus is sitting with his disciples. In verse 19 he says He took the bread and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me, right? Jesus didn't say, he didn't tear his arm off and give it to the disciples and be like, hey, here's my flesh to eat, right? And here's my blood. Here's a Jesus chicken McNugget. Have it, eat it. Um, no, he didn't say any of that, right? He takes the bread there and he breaks it and he says, this is my body. So again, it's, it's a plain explanation there that uh, the, the flesh to eat and blood to drink is, is not literal, but a spiritual meaning. And the third reason, if that wasn't enough, is the Old Testament forbid forbid anybody to uh to drink blood and cannibalism obviously was out of the question and so and that's in leviticus uh 26 29 and deuteronomy 28 you can read about that so that was the jews he just addressed the jews with that strong language and instead of believing uh in what jesus said they just grumbled complained and reasoned from their own logic so now he's going to turn to the people, his, his disciples, quote, unquote, the people that had been following him, the people that knew him as a miracle worker. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling, there's that word again, about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and of life and life. There are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning for those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So let's look at that word really quick in verse 60. Verse 60 says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying who can listen to it. That word hard in the Greek is this word uh, skleros, skleros um it's hard that it's not they're not saying it's hard to understand you know you're saying you give your flesh to eat and drink your blood it's not like hard hey i don't understand that it's hard that this is offensive the things that you're saying is offending me like um it's offending my inner being and i understand what you're saying but it's super offensive and why was it offensive and, and Jared, Jared kind of talked about this, uh, uh, I don't know how long, it was about a month ago or three weeks ago. He had said, what caused people not to believe, or what, why were the Jews not believing? And I, and I think we'll address that starting in verse 67. I think that Jesus is going to get to the heart of the issue here. But you have to think, these disciples that were following Jesus, these disciples, they... They so desperately wanted Messiah. They wanted political power. That was one thing that that could have been going on in their heart. They could have wanted just a miracle worker, not somebody to come in and actually change their hearts and and deal with their their wicked hearts, but to actually just somebody who do miracles to potentially even just feed their their stomachs, right? Like we saw in uh, chapter six. And then Jesus says this statement in verse uh, 62. He says, Do you take offense to this? And then verse 62, then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? He essentially says, you think this is hard, this teaching? Wait till you see the crucifixion and then the stories that I have ascended to, to where God was before. And it's funny because Paul kind of talks about this in 1 Corinthians which I'll just read there. Uh it's First Corinthians chapter one. The whole story of Messiah, the whole story of Jesus is it's a it's offensive. But uh chapter one of First Corinthians verse 23, Paul writes, he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks s- seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both. Jews and Greeks, the Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's funny how God, (laughs) the the way he deals with men's wisdom and, um, and their pride and their wicked hearts, he does, it's like he just turns everything upside down, turns it on its head. And it's funny that that verse, it's like, man, He's like, you think that, you know, you think that's offensive. Wait till you see the hear about the Ascension or the Crucifixion. Because they wanted somebody, they wanted somebody, like I said, they wanted somebody to come to power and, and reign as this mighty king. And then all of a sudden here, you have Jesus, this meek person, uh, healing people and speaking deep spiritual truth. And, and people at the end of the day just didn't want that, right? Showed them where their hearts were. were. Um. Now look at verse 67. He's going to look now at the last group of people, his, his true, true disciples, and it says this. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the 12? I don't know why I'm getting emotional. (laughs) Did I not choose you, the 12? Um, Yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. It's funny. I've been thinking about this verse and um, specifically peter's response and what's different about his response here than the 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 jew the the jews or even the quote-unquote disciples was it's almost this picture of this person going we followed you and as crazy as these things might sound i submit to you i trust you i love you and where else are we going to go it's obvious that you have the words of eternal life. So there's this like childlike faith that you see in Peter, which I don't know if he had it all figured out. I mean, these were pretty strong words at the time. Maybe, you know, later, I'm sure they, they, they put it all together. But it didn't matter. It didn't matter how hard it was. It didn't matter what trials they were going through. They knew Jesus. They trusted Jesus. And he wasn't in a position to grumble or fight for, you know, some leader in political power, but just to come to Jesus with that childlike faith and go, you have the words of eternal life. In the Greek, um, there's the word um, in verse 69, it says, and we have believed and have come to know that word to know there's, this is kind of, this is kind of cool just to um, add to new, some nuance to this. In the Greek, there's two words to to know something. Uh, The first word to know is this word oida, and oida, to know something, is like, I know something to be true because I read it, or I kind of figured it out in my head, Um, and so that's kind of the first word. The, The second word is gnosko, which it's this deeper knowledge. It's not just I read it, or I know it to be true because I figured it out in my head, but I know it to—it's I know it to be true because I've experienced it, I've I've felt it, I've lived it. And the word there that Peter uses, he says, uh, "We have believed and come to know." It's gnosko. We've come to experience. We have come to live that you are the Holy One of God. And therein lies, really, I think the point of all that we're going through today. Peter's response there was this childlike faith, and he came to know. He came to Gnosko. He had this experiential knowledge of Jesus, where he lived with him. He's experienced him, and just like a son would trust his father, I believe that Peter didn't have it all figured out, but he trusted Jesus. And therein lies the key, right? I mean, that's what God wants. He wants that childlike faith. He wants that relationship uh, with his people. I got a story with this and I don't mean to talk about my dad all the time <laughs> or paint him as like a bad picture. Cause I, he's a, he's an amazing father. I love my dad so much. Uh, but there was a story as I read through this, that stuck with me. Um, do you guys know where bullhead is? It's, uh, now I can't even think it's the river in Colorado. I think it's off the Colorado river. It's somewhere. Anyways, it's this river that, um, we would take family vacations too. And I think I was, I think I was like eight years old and, uh, and my dad, I, I mean, he's always been like this wild person, you know, just always this adrenaline junkie. And, um, and he'd do things that would scare me sometimes as a kid. And so we took this family vacation one time to the river and, uh, and my dad wanted to take me out in a jet ski. And I was just, freaked out i was like i i didn't want to go with him like i i I genuinely didn't want to go with him but my uncle like i knew my uncle to be just this calm nice trusting guy and my poor dad i ended up going with my uncle instead and i'll never forget when i came back you know and he would just he'd go nice and slow and you know took care of me but when i came back my mom's like you know you you really hurt your dad by not going with them but i'm like i don't trust my dad <laughs> in that regard like this is some just adrenaline junkie and i don't know what he's gonna do we're gonna go on this jet ski and i'm gonna somehow uh end up drowning but um i bring that up for a point um my uncle had proven himself uh when i was a kid just to be trustworthy you know not an adrenaline junkie and somebody that i i knew and seen and loved and trusted and I think in the same way, Peter, when we see this verse there, he wa- he's been walking with Jesus. He's been seeing these miracles. He's been experiencing Christ, his words, words of eternal life. And there is that trust. And I, I, I don't think that, you know, I don't I don't think he had it all figured out. We know he didn't. Um, but he still trusted in God's provision and that relationship and and. Uh, and and that's I I really believe that's what God wants um, with us to trust Him even though that we don't figu- we won't figure everything out in this life or when we're going through hard times that we say with Peter where as we're going through trials or hard times where else are we going to go You have the words of eternal life and we trust You God we trust just as You provided manna in the wilderness that You're going to provide for us in our situation. And so, um, so that's what I have for you today in this text. Um, what I didn't address, which I, I saved a little bit of time here at the end. I um, I didn't address something on purpose, but I will kind of touch on this little. There's a lot of other language in here with uh, some of the deeper points of theology um, where Jesus is saying um Basically that you have to be called by the father to believe. And that might trip up some of you. Um, And I I do want to address that really quick. So let's look at a few verses real quick. Uh, John 6, 44 says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, the question is this, how is that fair if 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 this is God's work and nobody can come to Jesus, or nobody can come to Jesus unless he's called by God. And how does that all work? And I'll be honest with y'all. Um, I don't know how it works, but one thing is clear. There's there's so many verses, you know, that kind of reinforce this whole idea of God calling, God doing the work. It's God's completed that uh God started this work and hit us, and he's faithful to complete it. But I'll tell you guys, there's even more verses that deal with our responsibility to come to Christ. And even in that same text, if you look at verse 37. All that the father will will uh, excuse me, all the father gives me will come to me. And so that's like God's almost responsibility. And then look at the rest of the verse and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And there's other verses, too, that talk about this, that are responsibility. I just want you to read. I want to read a few of other, other these verses. Like in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, it says, And by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. Philippians 1, 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, God's work, And here's our responsibility. We'll bring it to completion on the the day of Christ Jesus. And he goes on to to talk about our responsibility. Uh, Later in John, in John chapter 12, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So there's, I kid you not, you guys, I have, I probably have, seven pages front and back of verses talking about our responsibility uh to come to christ and to basically be strong to the end and keep god's commands and so um yet at the same time there's this other side of it where somehow it's god's work in us and he chooses and he does this work and he's the one who completes it so if you were to ask me what came first the chicken or the egg? I don't know if I can answer that. Um, I think that, I think both exist at the same time and it's clear. I mean, from that verse, even in 37, Jesus is clear, whoever's going to come to Christ, he's never going to cast out. Um, and so, um, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that a little bit. Cause that might be a question that you might have, but, uh, that kind of summarizes this uh, this discourse with Jesus and uh, these three these three groups of people.